0: All right. So as a review here, so the basic idea behind *Banim Chaverot* is journeying through life with other people. That Chazal, even though this is a *Mitzvah Sase* of Abbas Raim* and *Aleph BeDrachav*, Chazal created uh, different *Derabonin*ns that almost as benchmarks or um, you know mile markers to keep us on track in terms of these *Mitzvah sases. And it was kind of cool seeing the pattern in the list, you know, the, the three big ones, these different these different are actually life stages in a person's life from cradle to grave. So the whole idea of being with people means that we accompany them on their journey in life. And even though I wasn't giving Tommy or or anything of the sort, I was definitely presenting this idea that these these social mitzvahs, these bay and adam l'chavera mitzvahs, they provide, functionally, stability and trust. As far as stability goes, stabi- the stability that these halachas provide us uh, enable us to be individuals, because what ends, up, what ends up happening is that we're able to stand up in situations that are fear-provoking. Whether we're being pressured from authority figures or from, you know, having a simplistic worldview or pressures from, you know, the group. Because we have an outline of these halachas that are, you know, in a certain respect, they're kind of like the, a, a map of the known world that you exist in now. So stuff happens in life. Sometimes very bad things happen. You just had a class about it before me. And pushes you into the unknown. Whenever you're in the unknown, you're going to have a fear response. That's what the emotion does. Emotions are not these sort of things that, you know, people usually associate themselves with their emotions. I am happy. I am sad. That's not what emotions are. Emotions are just like seeing. They're just like hearing. They're just like being able to feel stuff. They're just another way of interpreting the world. So if you're feeling something, best trust it. And fear is informing you that you're in unknown territory you talking about like a, a gut feeling? No, fear. I mean fear. Terror. Afraid. Concerned. If you're feeling fear, trust it. I understand what it's telling you. It might not be objectively true, but what it's telling you is you're in unknown territory. Whether it's that feeling of uncomfortability when you go to a party and you don't know anybody. Well, you're going to have a nice time by the end of the night. But you don't know what you're stepping into. You're going to feel fear. A party is a scary example. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah That's extreme. Dream. Too ex- oh, really? That's too extreme? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm afraid of what's not extreme. All right. Ordering food. Ordering food side. at the, yeah. yeah. So tr- trust, oh, yeah, the tr- 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 trust the feeling isn't telling you something. It might not be, it's the objective truth. But just, you know, just like sometimes our, our eyes play tricks on us, feelings also play tricks on us, but it's a good source of data to know what's going on in front of you. And all fear does is tells you you're in unknown territory. Now, unfortunately, when you're afraid, um, your brain kind of shuts down. There's a fear response, and it's harder to do analytic thinking when you're in unknown territory. So... You know, being able to stand up to authority figures who they might know more, or, you know, standing, standing up to simplistic worldviews, you know, the sort of, like, problem of low resolution that we might be seeing the world in black and white when we have to be a little more complex. Or just pressure from the group, you know, this fear of belonging. Having, having a roadmap, a set of halachas that tell you how to interact in society, helps you have one foot in known territory. It reduces fear and allows you to start thinking out what you need to do to be more effective. The second thing that we covered was this idea of trust. That religion is something that enables trust to exist in the world. It's a binding force. Your Research shows that being religious increases love and compassion, for others that are in our group. And it also keeps us from hating and being disgusted by people who are outside our group. Religion increases what? Religion increases love and compassion we have for people in our group. And it also protects us from hating and being disgusted by people who are outside our group. Which is an interesting point. Religion never makes you love people on the outside. It, like, gives you the, the chance to make that choice. At the very least, you ain't hating them. And you can make a free will choice to actually say, you know what, I want to join your group. might be a group of two. You make a new friend. But you get this choice. I talked about the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, that view religion from this uh, evolutionary lens as being a parasitic byproduct of other stuff. And that it's wasteful, and it runs society to the ground, and we waste money, and it's just a bad thing. But unfortunately, their views don't actually line up with psychological and sociological research. What's been found is that being religious actually causes people or encourages people to be more open to invest their time and money in their community and to invest in charities that are even having nothing to do with their community. I think, like, you know, in in America, the Jews, you know, as far as charity goes, donates more money to non-Jewish organizations like the Red Cross than the rest of the non-Jews living in the United States. On top of all the dues they're paying to their shul and all this other Mishigavs. Leading a religious life actually reduces mental illness, depression, anxiety, and personality disorders. It strengthens your immune system. You actually get sick less and you don't die sooner. So, things like cardiovascular problems are a lot less prevalent. Things like dementia are a lot less prevalent. Yeah. Go through the research. If, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you a reading list. But yes, it's possible. I'm also curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's influencing it? Um, it's not exactly clear. Um, it, it, at, the, at the bottom line, seems to be this idea of trust, creating creating uh, trust between people and binding people is really really good idea. Like get some friends. You know, it's like it is more than get some friends. It's like get a place where you belong, and everybody is striving to be better. You know, any religion is more or less trying to do that—to transcend your nature and be better. So, it's like something about trying to be better actually is good for you on a biological level. It increases life satisfaction, reduces suicide. Like that's what religion offers. Now, again, I'm not giving a mitzvahs. I'm not trying to say these are the re- this is the reason to be religious. Uh, Necessarily, but it's really uh, an important part of making that assessment. It's like, what do you get? At the very least, the new atheists need to go back and do better research. That's that's the argument I'm making. And even that is it's worth worth kind of. You guys ever read the Coosery? No. Get it? He's really interesting. Oh, uh, he, the Cozier, he was He was one of He was one of the Sfardim. He was Spanish, and he is amazing. Um, they have it in English. Big thick book. It's worth reading, and it's very unique amongst all the Sfardim because, generally speaking, the during, uh, you know, during the the Golden Age in Spain, all the him were more like rationalists, you know, Aristotelians and all this sort of stuff. The Rambam, Ibn Ezra, all these guys. But um, he he's not. And so he actually gives a really neat, interesting perspective on religion, which is more experiential. And he, in different parts, he, he offers proofs for the existence of God, but they're not classic proofs. He's not proving the prime mover, or the first cause, and all that stuff. He makes the argument religion's pragmatic. It actually makes your life better. So maybe it's truthful. Check it out. Okay, so all true proof, like everything still valid? Fairly. Yeah, I mean, he he gets more metaphysical, but it's like, this is the same argument. The structure I'm giving you is the same type of argument he gives. So maybe it is a proof for the existence of God. Okay. So today, we're going to we're gonna move on to the other the other side of Bain and Luc And taking from rev Hirsch and the Malbim, we're kind of looking at halach in general, but more specifically Bain and L'chavera is having two parts. The harsini part, the revelation part, which is what we covered. That's what we did the last two classes. What we're moving into is the second part of Bain and L'chavera is the instinct, or you know, the human heart of the whole thing. It really boils down to what role does the seichel have? Normal human intelligence. What role does that have in creating new halachas? Because being people, we're actually really good at being people. There's There's a deep chachma in being a person that we can draw from to generate halacha. So there's three parts to this guy, to, the to, to this more instinctual, the role the human heart has to play in halacha. There's three aspects to it, and we're I think as the classes are going on, we're, we're going to be doing a bit of a halachic turn turn in the sense of getting more um, halachai. So we have three halachic principles I'm going to be throwing at you now. The idea of pshara, the idea of lifni mishura sadin. Can you spell these on the board, please? Yeah, yeah, I will. So I'm throwing it at pshara, sedin, and seichal yashar. Pshara. Compromise. Compromise. The actual etymology of this word, pshara, means not too hot, not too cold. It's cute. So what place does compromise have in divine law? That's a funky one. Because I mean, in one sense, Pshara is kind of like fuzzy logic. We're kind of stepping outside a divine law, which is very orderly, very straightforward, and we're trying to hold life complexity. How to live with people? It's it's you know, in a, in a way where you have enough flexibility where you can continue living with people. And the idea with all these three concepts is this interplay between you have to be. Orderly, but at a certain point you become too rigid. You have to be flexible, but at a certain point, you're one of these—you know—live your own truth people. That's too much. But you have to be flexible, and you do need to have order. Strike a balance between these two. So That's we're there. All these three concepts are playing with those two. Those two general ideas: how to be flexible and orderly at the same time in order to maintain society and human relationships. So there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin that has a really cool mach locus. Can one seek a pshara in Bezdin? And usually you don't have such dramatically different views in halacha. You know, in, when, you're, when, you're, when you're going through shas, like you do, any mach locus you want to make into a platypus, is this a bird or is this a mammal? It lays eggs, but it has hair. They're they're issues that are so fine that it's not immediately obvious what the devil that thing is. So it's really rare you have such a dramatically different view of the world. Rabbi Eliezer ben Rabbi Yossi Aglili says it's an isser der When you're embased in, you can't see compromise. It's like spitting in the face of God that you need to seek truth and justice. That's what life should be about. You know, God went out of his way to create the world and create laws. Might as well follow him. That's his view. So it's usher to seek pshara. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha says, no, nope. it's a mitzvah sa'aseh. Something you actually have to do before the Beisden begins. The way it kind of works from a halachic standpoint, and this is we, we, lemaisa we Paskin like this shita, that today whenever you go into baysdin. Uh, usually, the the ba'atidinim will have everybody sign a sign a waiver that they accept shara. It gives a lot of power to Dayanim where they basically can they can make a livable ruling and not villainize one person over another. It, it, it enables them to seek compromise between both groups. Because the whole idea, says Rabbi Yeshua, is listen, and this is the platypus part of it. Is well, what? What's the whole point of law? It's true, law is orderly and law is a, a rigid structure that enables society to be. But if you hold that too rigidly, if you have too much law, well you're creating a tyranny. Human relationships cannot survive while being strangled in a legalistic society. I mean this, there's crazy, crazy outcomes in the United States as an example. It's a very legalistic society where you have places where people actually hesitate to save people's lives lest they might get sued. There was a, a mice a couple years ago. Poor guy was flooding. Poor guy, you know, ran his car off a bridge. He is going to drown to death. So someone sees what happens, you know, and figures, you know what, might as well risk my life to save him, you know. Got nothing better to do. Like really went out on a limb, you know, like this is dangerous stuff. Pulls the guy out, breaks his arm. Because he couldn't get the door open. You can't when the when the car submerged, like the air pressure and the water pressure is such. You can't open that door at all. So you know he had to you know crack the window and schlep the guy out, and he dislocated his arm, and he got sued. And how? From the guy. Yeah. I yeah, that's right. I didn't ask to be saved. Yeah, yeah, basically. Are you kidding. No. He sued him. They sued him and won. but later, what in appeal in appeals, what happened was they they think. Because that was the law in the books. He he did he made he caused damages. He broke an arm, Mm. and also I mean, like you know, don the chafs close. The healthcare system in the states is so screwy. It's like it would cost a bazillion dollars to fix that arm anyway. It's like there's there's some element of desperation I think in this story. You know, Um, but and but they they ended up and a lot of states have done this. They've changed the law. They've created what's called Good Samaritan laws that protect people when they're saving someone's life from legal action. So there, so, there is, so there is this tension. There is, even though the, the din is very radical, asr and mutter, mitzvah, you know, this is a fine point. At what point does law cease allowing society to exist and is a tyranny against people from being able to have a society? Worrying about being sued if you save someone's life. So an idea, that, an example of, of this sort of case. You know, my my rover of Berkowitz. You know, he in his based in they had a he had a really f- interesting case. It was a couple that they it was their second marriage, and you know they didn't want to have such a big marriage. They only invited a couple guests. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have so much money anyway, and but they were really popular. They're really really popular in the community, and it was like the way they met each other was really neat. Also, it was like there was a lot of backstory to this, where everybody and his brother showed up to this wedding. Like hundreds, a couple hundred people ended up showing up. So the caterer near has a heart attack because like he pres- he like prepared like f- you know 25 50 plates and an army is descending on this wedding. So and he, so he thinking, you know, well maybe there was an oversight, maybe they underestimated, maybe they ended up inviting more people than they told me. We need to get these people food. So he sent his workers out to other, other wedding halls here in Yerushalayim and got a whole bunch of food, brought it back in, and, and, and uh, gave it to all the guests. Great wedding. Everyone had a good time. Except the couple at the end of it when they got the bill. Yes. Now we have, now we have a monetary case to adjudicate. Halacha lemaisa. They were in the right. If they had chosen not to take on a pshara, they would had to have paid nothing. Who? Is it the couple? The couple. They were in the right. But, like I said, there were a lot of other factors that were, again, more fuzzy logic. You know, the caterer was not trying to cheat them. You know, he was known to be a, a good, upstanding guy. You know, it, that just wasn't his character. There was a lot of reason to assume, man, he really had good intention to, you know, make this wedding yeah, a good wedding. He went out of it. his way. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of, maybe they, he didn't get the message. I mean, it's kind of weird. You're ha- it's, it's, it's an unusual circumstance. You have a wedding and you're thinking only 50 people are coming and a bazillion people show up. So it's like, it makes sense to think, I must have missed something. It must be this is who should be showing up. So they were offered for Pshara. And what ended up happening was, you know, he did not make a profit, but the couple paid cost, which it's pretty cheap. I mean, the, the, hike, the hike in price is a lot. So it wasn't so much out of their pocket. And he didn't come away with a financial loss. And they left friends. So Pshara is finding a way to continue to live with all the complexity of life, to live with other people, without overemphasizing one, one value or one principle over another. It's a compromise. What do you mean by overemphasizing? Well, because if we emphasize the value of fair, well, that's unfair or what they're owed the, value, the the value of of what is owed to you they were they were they were owed only what they had paid for and by golly they shouldn't pay any more but that value has to ignore neighborliness it's like doesn't matter if you're my neighbor i'm not paying you that i don't care how much money you lost so those are two values competing and if you choose one over the other like you're really choosing one over the other There is a loss there. Pshara is trying to take a little bit from every value, trying to put together neighborliness and friendliness and, and yes, what people are, are owed them and, you know, respecting property, but also taking into consideration intentions. That's Pshara. The other example I offered you guys—the other example I offered you guys was *Leifni What's that dog? What does this thing do? The beyond letters. So, yeah, that's right. So it's not so much compromise, but it's the idea that too much of anything is bad. That's the second one. Yeah, ni Mishura Sedin. Too much of anything is bad, and *Leifni Mishura sedin is is confronting the problem of rigidity. That's dangerous when there's too much of it. And maybe in order for society to be able to get along nicely, you have to give up what you're rightfully owed. Not compromising, but you're literally giving up something. You might not be giving up much, but you got to give up something. That's the definition of that? Giving up what you think is rightfully yours? What, you, what is rightfully yours. Um. This, this kind of gets into the whole idea of hierarchies in society. You know, we, we have to have hierarchies in order to function as a society. Things have to be rigid to a certain extent. You need to have laws. But, you know, but having, having, having said that, you know, hierarchies are positive in the sense that they enable the whole group to function. And it enables people who are the best at what they do to take those positions and, you know, be effective in them. You, know, you do have to stand for what you are owed. You do have to, stand what, you have to stand up for the position of society you have. You don't just give that up. What you do in your role actually is important. But what this concept adds is that if you're too rigid, what ends up happening is you're too unresponsive to all the technicalities of the moment. Say too rigid. Well, if too rigid if you're too rigid you can't be you can't be able to respond as quickly or as effectively to the particular circumstances that are in front of you You've got to take it as it comes sometimes and not stand on principle so leaving me sure the din that the sort of things that fall in this category is well just being mavater Giving up your claim to property, which is yours, or the obligation—not obligation, but the the because um, none of these are obligations. They all stand outside of law. But the the heavily encouraged idea. Let's say you you know you're a, you're a farmer. You own a field. Your neighbor's field is next to you. You want to sell your field. So your neighbor has precedence. In buying your field, because well, it it, it saves some time, travel time, and you know, he'll it, if you sell your field to someone else, which is your right, he might not have access to his field anymore. So it's your field; you have the you have the legal right to sell it to whoever you want. But you should have in mind what 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 would benefit other people more in this more. Um, Compassionate sort of way of thinking, so your neighbor has 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 kedima. He has precedence to buying that field. This is a funny one. Returning lost objects. There are certain people that it's un- it's beneath their dignity to return a lost object. It's mach reshonim. We we Ashkenazim say, who cares about your kavod? Return the lost object. According to according to svardim. No, you should stand on your on your covot. It looks silly for the rav of the shul to return someone's lost donkey. Looks bad. Now, he may have to pay for it, you know, like the halakha uh, comes out for the Sephardim that, well, okay, he doesn't have to return the donkey, but he should out-of-pocket pay for the donkey he didn't return. That's Lifni Mishura Sedin. Paying for the donkey because it didn't make sense, according to your stature in life, to be schlepping this donkey all across town. Another one is returning a lost object after the person's given up all hope of ever getting it back. Yayush. When someone gives up, uh, you 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 know that little Billy lost his million dollars, and you picked it up, and you know it's his. But he gives up hope of ever finding it ever again. According to halacha, it is yours. You are now a millionaire. Mm-hmm. But you know whose it is. Halacha does not obligate you to return that million dollars. It notify the person? No, it's yours. He gave up hope. You found an ownerless object. Mm-hmm. The halacha is, you just became a millionaire. But he was holding it the whole time until he gave up. Looking for it, so that's he gave up. This. You well, yeah. There's a, there's other. You, you came into your possession after he gave up hope. That would be the. Yeah, they came in possession while like, Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. Right. No yes. Benefits. No, no, right. Yeah, yeah, but but you, from yeah, yeah, you can't, can't do that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's criminal. Have you no, how the, like the hope? Like how do you know when he fully gave up? Like if you would then go and take out a new loan, let's say he took out a loan. something like that, he took in a new loan or, or says verbally, man, I lost that million dollars, it's gone. I can't believe it. He makes a verbal declaration. You know what his intentions are, you know how he feels about that million dollars. And honestly, if you lost a million dollars, I don't think it takes so long for you to give up hope. It's like wherever that is, someone that else is. Someone else. Is, no, it's like wherever it is, someone else is spending it. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, you might you might dislike you lost the million dollars, and you'll dislike it till the day you die. But whoever found it is having a good life. Like that's you gave up hope. So according to Leifnemisharestedin, is you should you as a good person should return that million dollars. The last one's a funny one. The last example I have here is forcing someone rich to give tzedakah. To forcibly force them. Give them a little whack. Come on, man. You haven't given tzedakah since forever and you ha- you just found someone else's million dollars. Why aren't you giving tzedakah? So there's, a, there's an interesting principle in halacha that whenever you have in the text the promise of what you're going to get. In Devarim, it's, it, it explicitly says if you give tzedakah, well, your life is going to be great. So... In the halakhic system, whenever you have been given a motivation, the courts can't give additional motivation. Well, in this case, leafy fi mishura sedin actually empowers Bezdin to be a little pushy. Not as pushy as they would usually be in other things that they would be pushy in. But they can be pushy and encourage this guy to start giving more tzedakah. Can't really say. They can't force you to do it. They'll say you're a bad guy, come on, give me a break. But they can't physically force you. I mean, there's certain things like, you know, depending upon which Risho uh, you're adopting, I mean can get pretty forceful. You know, it's not it's not just they smile and say, Come on, be a sweetheart. Like it can get pretty it can get pretty pushy. Except in those cases where the text actually has given you the motivation in black and white. This is what you're going to get. So these are all great ideas. They encourage us to be, like I said, still maintain order, but be flexible. To live in harmony with other people. But the problem's deeper than that. Because from a psychological perspective, we are constantly facing something called... A confirmation bias. We are always going to think we are right all the time. Is this still under leafing? Yes. Okay. These these two leafing moshurah sedin and pshara. These aren't just nice ideas that make us better people, but it's actually solving a problem, it's solving a big problem, because we are we are psychologically built to always think we're right. What about really guilty people? That's it. That's. E- well, even guilty people is going to manifest differently. There's going to be certain things they're guilty about and other things not. But I'll tell you, like, you know, the, the amount of people who... Most people think they're an amazing driver. If I were to ask y'all, you know, are you just an average driver? You tell me no. I mean... Okay, so maybe you're... Yeah, right, you're maybe more realistic. But, you know, they, they found that people who have even just been in an accident and it was their fault, even they are going to still say, I'm an above-average driver that's the confirmation bias nice. So it's really this we're always we, it's like we have this radar that's constantly looking to verify everything we already know affirm all of our beliefs we already got it right and it's these it's these two principles that are really pushing back on that trying to get us to behave more humbly. To get around this psychological problem. And I mean, this one gets nutty. I mean, like, the way we gather information, what we consider as fact as opposed to fiction, confirmation bias. We'll always think the facts that make sense to us are facts, and if it doesn't make sense to us, we're going to be less hesitant to take them on as facts. That's fake news. Hey, A warming. <laughs> We're always going to have an atia towards whatever we learn, if, it's, if it conforms to what we want, what we desire, we're going to take that information as being more accurate, even if it's not. There's actually a correlation. The smarter you are or the better you're at at reasoning is going to increase how susceptible you are to the confirmation bias because you're going to come up with a lot of fancy ways of figuring out how, yeah, I'm really right. A part of this also is, well, sometimes you're confronted with ambiguous information. And you have to choose, is this good or bad? And, well, you're not going to do it objectively. You're just going to choose whatever you think, whatever conforms to everything you've already ever known. So it's like there's there's layer after layer after layer of resistance to seeing things we've never seen before. To buying into things... That we've never considered. Even something as simple as the things we, things we learn earlier in life, we give more credence to. You know, this this comes out in life with you know the teacher problem. You know, you're you're having a you're having a fight with a with a with a friend. You know, and well, okay, whoever gets the teacher first is going to win. You're going to convince. You know, if you get to the teacher first, chances are the teacher is going to buy your story is much more likely than if you came second, and that's statistically true. Get to the teacher first, man. That's also confirmation bias. What we learn first has precedence. You know, From a from a religious perspective, the way this one comes out is like our, our ideas of what God is. Some usually get stuck around, you know, grade two. Because that's what we've encountered first. We give more value to that sort of thing. So most people, and it's not like, it's not that they're dumb, it's not that they're not thinking, it's just... This is just a natural part of life. We have confirmation bias and we just value what we learned when we were much younger than what we learn now. It's harder to overcome thinking habits. And this is why the Chofetz Kaim. I mean, just in general, you know, his his view of how to how to be able to do the mitzvah of being Domchavskos of giving people the benefit of the doubt at the very least, you can always think maybe this is just confirmation bias. Everyone really does always think that they're right. Now, what the person's doing it might be wrong and horrible, and that, that's not the point. You don't, you don't naively give people the benefit of the doubt, but you can assume at the very least people have good intentions, whatever they're doing, no matter how misguided or silly it might be. So it's it's these two mitzvahs that offset the confirmation bias. Allow us to live in reality just a little bit more. Now there was the third factor I mentioned of Sechel Yashar. That's going to be a big topic, and we're going to talk about that next week. But I want to give a little introduction to it. Because this idea is so... It's foundational, and it has such a huge impact in halakha. Yes. Uh, straight thinking. <laughs> Where's the Rav Yitzhak Compentone. he was one of the Rishonim who, he was actually the first Rishon to outline a method of how to learn Gemara. And so he gave a rule. Throughout Shas, you'll, you'll find this term, Lama Likra. Why do I need a Pusik? And what that term basically means is actually the facts are already known. That the Torah, it's, it's, you'll have this as a, as a difficulty against a statement of the Gemara. Someone will darshan a Pusik, and I learned this halacha from this Pusik, and the Kasha will be Lama Likra. I don't need a Pusik for that. I can rely on human reason alone to derive that halacha. Wait a minute. Human reason? You can think up halachas? That's kind of interesting. The Torah never is going to outline Things that are obviously true. It's only going to be outlining and making decisions in the world of the platypus. Every machlocus is a machlocus. Is it, again, is it a platypus? Is this a mammal? It's got hair. Wait a second, it lays eggs. Is it a bird? That's what the Gemara talks about. Every case is a platypus. Well, it has hair and lays eggs. Yep. <laughs> is it a bird? Yeah. Is it a mammal? That's what it is. I know what platypus is. I'm saying, but like, do people not <laughs> no know like, how to define a platypus? Well, because it's weird. Because mammals, mammals don't lay eggs, do they? Wait, no, not I know of. But it has hair. Who knows, Maybe obviously. it's its dome, like 19. Yeah, what is that thing? It's a little bit of bird, it's a little, little bit of mammal. There could be a human that lays <laughs> I'm not going to lie. So this principle is going to have far-reaching implications. It's going to be shy in terms of bayonet on the cavero. That we are going that we we're gonna to have to are gonna outline some principles here that our human reason alone will obligate us in mitzvah's ases and iser, iser der Without the Torah even giving a peep. If you reasonably think something and it's a reasonable idea, you are Chayev. It'll kinda of get into an idea of well it's not just Banam Chavera, but this is gonna pop up in every area of Holak. Yeah, Chayev. According to Torah law. What does that mean? It means it does the Torah doesn't have to obligate you in something to be obligated to God. Probably because it's obvious. it's obvious, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a maybe it's a Mitzvah to get eight hours sleep. Maybe you're Chayev to get eight hours sleep. Mmm. And it's gonna have implications for, for non-Jews because while it's true they have the Sheva Misfas Binay Noach, there's a lot more things that make Make a make make a, make a lot of sense, than just those. Yeah, so this 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 principle has far-reaching implications, and we're going to next week we're going to play around with this one. How can we how can we harness and use Sechol Yashar to recognize the mitzvahs that we're already obligated in without the Torah telling us? <laughs> All right.